0: Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast all about marvellous video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined, as per always, by my two friends Chris Dow, Lilac Wars, and Minty Booth. Lilac Walls. And this week's super special bonus episode is a, it's a real treat for us as we're chatting with a, a legitimate video games industry legend. We are thrilled to welcome to the show the one and only Giles Goddard. Welcome, Giles. Lilac Walls. Um, So for any losers that aren't familiar with your name, Giles, they will certainly be familiar with your oeuvre. Uh, some of the games you've worked on are, I mean, just, just, a, just a few small little games you might have heard of. Star Fox, Super Mario 64, 1080 Snowboarding, Doshin' the Giant, Steel Diver. Most recently, the virtual reality spiritual successor to 1080, Carve Snowboarding. I mean, what, what a CV. What a CV you have. Um, we can't wait to pick your brains about, I mean, I mean literally all of it.
1: Uh, well, th- thank you. I mean, I, I actually forget what I do, what I've done most of the time. So I have to look at my wiki page to sort of keep updated. <laughs> so if, I, if, if there's weird pauses, it's probably me Googling what I've worked on
0: and stuff. So we start as we always do with our guests and ask you, what are you currently playing is there any games you've played recently that you would recommend
1: yeah i recommend Cast snowboarding because it's all i've been playing for the last couple of months <laughs> but i mean having said that i mean i do play a couple of ios games and especially mm. i've been playing a fantastic game called infinity pinball recently Ah, i don't know if you've played it but I have it's not. great fun it's a kind of a retro sort of old school pinball game you know it feels like you're playing an old game boy pinball game great great fun
0: Ah yes, I've just had a look at it now. Uh, it's downloading onto my phone. <laughs> Kirby's Pinball Land. <laughs> oh, Kirby's Pinball was a great game.
1: Yeah, it's one of my favourite got... games. I think. It's it's got definite sort of eight bit vibes.
0: Pinball games seem to work so well on phones as well. Like I mean, well, yeah, it, yeah. it's such easy, simple controls. You can't you can't get it wrong really.
1: Made by a fellow Brit in uh, Tokyo, actually called Hawking.
0: Ah, so let's take it back to where it all began for you, which is Argonaut Games. And I'm going to hand over to Chris, who is just, I mean, smarter than me and has a much <laughs> deeper knowledge of uh, video games history. So Chris, uh, why don't you tell us, give us a li- little intro about Argonaut Games. So Argonaut Games were a
2: very big name on the Super Nintendo, especially. And as far as I understand, when when you were there, Giles, Argonaut were creating the Super FX chip that would go on to power games like Yoshi's Island and and things like the technically oppressive, but pretty miserable to play Doom as well. (laughs) But but most importantly for today, the Super FX chip would power the Argonaut-developed Star Fox and Stunt Race FX. And they're both games that make the humble SNES appear a way more capable machine than it actually is by way of the the chip itself sort of crunching a few numbers below the hood to, to pump out proper polygon models on a machine that really wasn't in the business of producing them normally. I wanted to ask, for the time, what was it like working on sort of bleeding edge home technology like this, like something very new that was going to really change how how sort of sixteen bit games looked.
1: I mean, I joined Argonaut when I was really young. I I quit school early, didn't do my A levels. I, I finished my O level. I probably don't know what O levels and A levels are. But anyway, <laughs> they used to be like the you know before you go to college or uni, or whatever, you do some big tests, and I I didn't I quit those early. Went to London to work for Argonaut because they were making 3D games, 3D sort of wireframe games at the time. They just finished StarGlider and they were working on StarGlider Two. Uh, I don't know if you know about those games, but basically StarGlider was like a, a wireframe sort of homage to the to the early Star Wars yeah arcade machine. Brilliant Star Wars arcade machine. And that was all done by one person, you know, the boss Jez San. Uh, and I was so impressed with that, you know, and I was really into. 3D as well. So I was, you know, I wanted to do filled-in 3D, you know, actual polygons. They had a game, Star Glitter 2, which was doing that. So I said, I need to go and work for them and work on that. So I showed them some stuff, got an interview, and got accepted. Whatever. Argonaut were always working on the cutting edge of sort of 3D all of the time. They were, you know, it was their main thing was you know cutting edge 3D. Yeah. So it was kind of a natural thing to to move on to. The FX chip, because that was they tried some um, 3D on a on a non you know on a just a raw NES because we didn't have SNESes at those times, and it was clear that you, you I mean you could do it but there was a horrendous frame rate so <laughs> it would it would need a DSP or, or some kind yeah. of some help yeah. on the hardware front. So Jez went to Nintendo and said, well we can do 3D but it's going to require a chip, and this is how you do it, 3D on on a NES whatever. And then you know that went on to the sort of the SNES. The Nintendo said, "Well, we actually we've got a new piece of hardware called a Super Nintendo," and that's where you know the, the idea was to basically add a a DSP chip for that, which was the FX chip. I mean, it's it's really
2: interesting because there's obviously there's real limitations of hardware, and by using something like the DSPs on on the on the NES or, or kind of the Super FX chip on the on the SNES, it's. It's just trying to circumvent those limitations, essentially, isn't it? I mean, when, when you were working for, for the Super Nintendo, did you have to make any concessions still during development to kind of get Star Fox up and running as the team wanted? Or were you kind of building the, the, the chip to spec?
1: The entire thing was a concession. The entire <laughs> game development was a concession. Because it's a, it's a sprite machine, yeah. basically, the, the, the SNES. Yeah. You know, it, it can draw... Lots of sprites really well, move them around, and it can draw a couple of BGs. One of them, it can rotate, you know, Mode 7 or whatever. But it certainly couldn't, it certainly is not designed for for 3D. The architecture is just completely different. So, yeah, everything was basically to try and design around the the SNES almost. Or to design stuff as separate from the SNES as possible and then feed feed it back into the SNES, you know what I mean? So there was no sort of bottlenecks happening anywhere.
2: Star Fox, as as I imagine anyone who listens to this show will know, it's it's a lovely little rail shooter. It's got branching paths, flying through rings, the, the whole sort of gubbins. But <laughs> admittedly, in 2021, the frame rate is perhaps a little bit lower than modern players may be used to. But I, I think the game itself is still really engaging. And we're, we're very fortunate these days. You know, you can play Star Fox as well as the, the cancelled and, and then later revived sequel Star Fox 2 on Nintendo Switch Online. So I, I would recommend people give them a go, just... You know, if you haven't played them before, it's good to kind of have context. But in, in developing Star Fox, what were the priorities for for the team with that game? Like, was it about still being a fun experience or was it purely a technical showcase first and foremost and then everything else was kind of second?
1: That's quite a good question, actually. I mean, it, kind of both, really. We knew that we wanted to, to make a game that was different than, you know, all the flat 2D sprite games and we wanted to make it a thing, a game that was designed for 3D rather than, you know, just sort of converting the game yeah. to 3D. Mm. So it was kind of both at the same time, really, I think. Yeah. You know, it was a way of showcasing what this new chip could do, but also using the chip as a tool to make a, a cool game, if you know what I yeah.
2: mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, following Star Fox... Stunt Race FX is, is maybe the lesser known of the, the kind of Argonaut-developed SNES library. It's definitely got its fans, but it's a title that's largely just been left back on the 16-bit machine outside of like little cameos and Smash Bros and things like that. And yet, I think it's a really, I think it's a really enjoyable racing game. You know, the, the Super FX chip helps render proper 3D tracks. You've got polygon racers and it, it feels really weighty. And, and perhaps, like perhaps some of this comes from, again, not trying to shit on the technical achievements of the time, but it does have a reduced frame rate. So it's got kind of just a heaviness to it.
1: That heaviness wasn't intentional. <laughs> basically, I mean, I had, was, this is similar to Star Fox actually. So we start off with just basically a, a ship or a car and then you have the flat ground plane and nothing else on the screen. Yeah. And it plays really fluidly. It's like 20 frames a second, yeah. which at that time was <laughs> yeah. super fast. Now, obviously, it's kind of laughable, but you know, <laughs> at the time, 20 frames a second was, was really smooth. So you design all the, the dynamics and everything to move at 20 hertz, 20 frames a second without really thinking about what frame rate independence was. Frame rate independence is basically designing the physics to move at any frame rate. Yeah. Is, it's kind of taken for granted nowadays, but at the time, it was very much... This is what you can do in a frame, and you know your frame rate. It's, it's either going to be 30 or 60 or 20 or whatever. So you just, you just find your target frame rate and then design for that. Yeah. So the target frame rate for Stunt Race was 20 frames a second. So I designed the physics for that, and it felt really nice and smooth. And then at some point, you know, more and more stuff went in. It went down to sort of, I can't remember what the next one after 20 is. It's like 16, maybe, or something. And then went down to 13 you know it got really low <laughs> yeah at some point so you know when you when you crash into the wall all your parts sort of fall apart and then go back together and it feels really sort of gloopy and and a bit sort of well heavy yeah that wasn't actually intentional it was supposed to be more more elastic yeah you know faster faster feeding but pe- you know people some people in nintendo actually like that that gloopiness i, I think it, it does
2: work in a weird way because it's obviously it's it's running on kind of limited hardware compared to what what we know now, but it does give it a really unique feeling because the the other hits of that era that may be more fondly remembered. So you've got, you know, Mario Kart, you've got F Zero, they're both very slide-y games, And and you can really tell, I think, when you play them a lot, that they're games that are having to work with their hardware tricks, like like the Mode 7 kind of scaling that you mentioned earlier. And and to be honest, you could take the ships from F-Zero and just plonk them down in Mario Kart or the other way around. And I, d- I think only real diehards would notice that you're playing a different game because the limitations in the machine mean they're both built on such similar mechanical footing, whereas Stunt Race, because it's it's being rendered in 3D, is completely its own thing. And it has that sort of chunky knockabout quality where it, it just felt different. And and like you say, some of that does come down to it being kind of a, you know, the, the frame rate dropping as you're kind of putting more on screen. But I think it has a personality that wasn't really present in a lot of other, like. Th- you know pseudo 3d driving games of the era
1: i do get that but at the time your your number one enemy at the time being a programmer is is the frame rate yeah. mm. every time you see the frame drop like that it's it's like this horrific thing and <laughs> you it's not a good feeling yeah seeing your game run slow yeah so so if you're not a programmer it probably looks or oh, it's kind of unique and, and nice whatever but as a programmer, it's 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 not nice to watch. I mean, I mean goodness knows what the uh, the developers
0: of a game like Facebook Two Thousand would think. I mean, I, I often cite Facebook Two Thousand as a reference point. Which, if anyone hasn't played it, it was a first person shooter on the Game Boy. And I mean, genuinely impressive that it, it's running, but it, it literally runs at about three or four frames per second.
1: It was more like a slideshow. Yeah, wasn't yeah, it? yeah. That. yeah. great music yeah. though, great music.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because Stunt Race was like a, I guess like a follow-up to Star Fox that came out afterwards, was it any easier working with the Super FX chip now Now that it was kind of you know codified? It, it was something that existed that you'd worked on already? or Or did that kind of lead to just, everyone pushing for too much in, in stunt race and that kind of what was what then you know caused kind of the technical limitations again on top of of what the snares might have been struggling with
1: well it was it was definitely easier because the effects chip had been made developed and finished yeah and it was set in stone yeah. when we were making starfox you'd, you'd write you know a lot of the time we were using dev kits that were running half the speed of the actual final chip yeah so it was very hard to sort of yeah. get the feeling of things because everything was running so slow. And also it was so there was lots of hardware bugs in it, just really gnarly bugs where you you'd, you'd write a piece of code and sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't, or it just, it would work kind of, but then fail, which is, you know, from a software point of view, that's really hard to work with. Yeah. Because you do, you kind of lose you don't know whether it's your code or the hardware or, or whatever it is so it was easier than the fact that we didn't have any of that sort of baggage making it. But then again, there was it was slightly harder because people were expecting more from the chip this time around. So more textures and more polygons and more this and that and a split screen. Don't you remember. It was a, I think there was a split screen mode. Yeah, which is you know pretty horrendous <laughs> to try and do with with that kind of chip split screen on a normal snes with sprites and bgs is basically free yeah because sprites and bgs they're based upon scan line timing you know if you can say I draw these sprites for these scan lines draw this bg for these scan lines it doesn't really matter how many splits you have in the screen but for 3d you're having to sort of draw an entire scene and then put it to the put it into the actual hardware frame buffer, and then draw another scene, put it into that. So it's it's a it's a really big job for a chip like that. Yeah,
2: I mean, I imagine then, or, or I presume that it was a lot easier when you started being able to work on the Nintendo sixty four as kind of a, a step up from the from the snares. I mean, M- Minty's got a few questions he was going to mention about kind of. Those days, I guess the the projects you worked on around that time for Nintendo as
3: well. Mm, yes, yes. So, Charles, you became one of the first Western programmers to be sent to join Nintendo, working in Japan, which must have been quite exciting for you. How did that? How did that come about?
1: Well, I mean, that was that was part of the Star Fox thing where we were just sent over to work with Nintendo. You know, originally it was for a few months, and then it turned into six months, and then a year, or whatever. And I, I just stayed. I just stayed around. Stayed on to on at Nintendo became a full time employee. whatever. but yeah, I think at the, at the time it was all just quite new and exhilarating, and I didn't really know what Japan was at the time. I think I thought it was just like just from country in Asia. I had it was extremely naive. I think at the time. I've been to other counties. I you know I, I
3: know what East Anglia is like. How how different can it be?
1: Yeah, I, I, you know I'd been to Birmingham. I, think, <laughs> I thought that was exotic.
3: And one of the things that is often. Um, I guess uh, pins to your name is the uh, is the is the Mario face intro in Super Mario sixty four. Uh, just a, a fantastic, fun and silly little bonus that saw you able to uh, to grab and sort of distort Mario's three D visage into all manner of uh, different monstrosities. <laughs> I, I imagine that. Something like that would start out as maybe a bit of a tech demo. Uh, how did it end up in the game? So we were given
1: SGI workstations called Indies, which were fantastic little sort of mini supercomputers. They had a sort of web camera that you attached to your monitor. And it was the first web camera I've ever played with. And I realised that you could sort of program a thing to sort of take the, take the screen and, and modify it and, and detect what was happening on the screen. And I thought it would be cool to sort of do a motion capture type thing with my hands or, or whatever. So I was trying all sorts of things, and one of the things was just using ping-pong balls as a way of fluorescent ping-pong balls to sort of detect positions on the screen. So I did that, and it was quite cool. And I was also working on some other tech, which was things like IK, inverse kinematics, for bones, Mm. and skinning, which is the sort of the mesh around bones uh, for polygons, because up until that point, there there wasn't any sort of skinning in, in 3D games. So, you know, I thought it would be cool to sort of make a face that was controlled. A skinned, IK-based face, which was controlled by these balls. So, you know, we I worked with Koizumi-san to sort of make a little Mario prototype. And then uh, that was it. Basically, Miyamoto just walked past one day and sort of thought, uh, that's cool, why don't we put it in the game? And that was it. Very, very very Quick and simple. That's amazing.
0: <laughs> so, like one of the other things that's that's you know often follows your name when you google it is uh 1080 Snowboarding on the N64, which was I mean, a huge success, it was the start of a franchise. How did that game come about?
1: So, I think that was part of the IK kind of stuff. Mm. I thought it'd be cool to have characters in the game that were animating programmatically, so it would, rather than canned animation sequences, I could sort of have the IK sort of move the character to, to make it as realistic as possible. So I had a, a character go down a ski, slope. it wasn't a, a snowboard, it was just a, a character on some, on some skis, I think. Mm. Uh, but all the things like the, the movement of the, the knees and the bouncingness and the falling over and everything, that was all sort of programmatically animated. But it was extremely difficult to sort of make it look not crap (laughs) yeah the arms would just flail everywhere and 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 you you'd get into all these horrible situations so it was it was kind of a a bit of a dead end but i did think you know we could use some of this like the knees whatever use it for like a a skier or a snowboarder or something like that and i just started snowboarding at the time so i thought let's go with snowboarding that miyamoto because he was a skier he wanted to do skiing Oh, so we had this kind of... That guy. We have fisticuffs. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we had fisticuffs for well. a <laughs> while. But I managed to convince him that snowboarding was better because with snowboarding you could do sort of jumps. You know, it's like skating yeah. thing. Whereas the, the skiing was really old school and really old fashioned and kind of boring.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so he kind, of, he kind of knew, he saw that the, the way to go was like the, the skating sort of trick crazy side of things rather than the boring old sort of just normal skiing (laughs) so I, I won that well done. well done.
0: I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, there were a few other, uh, like, extreme sport games starting to come about. Obviously, there was Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, which was on the, the PlayStation. Over on the Saturn, there was Steep Slope Sliders, which uh, is obviously another snowboarding game, which I, I'm pretty sure nobody else
1: played. It's really good. I've just remembered that, actually. I totally forgot about Steep Slope Sliders. Such a weird name, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. It's not easy to say.
2: As, as a weird piece of trivia, Steep Slope Sliders is, is made by a company called Cave, who pretty much only do shoot ups like bullet hell shoot'-ups and that's that's almost the only game they've ever ever developed that isn't a shoot up <laughs>
1: <laughs> how about
0: that no idea why I mean steep Slope is is incredibly impressive to run on a, on a 32-bit console but I mean what did the what did the n64s increased Power offer to sort of expand on you know this little burgeoning subgenre of extreme
1: sports games it had nice pixels mm. <laughs> you know the the playstation had lots of pixels and the n64 had nice pixels yeah <laughs> i'm not trying to be facetious or anything but that that's kind of that was the thing it was basically you had two options with 3d it was that either you're going to go for quality or quantity yeah sony were going for the quantity and sgi were going for the quality yeah because sgi were now renowned for their sort of film work Whatever, so they they knew the importance of lighting and texturing and nice texturing and stuff like that. So I think the difference between the N64 and all the other ones was the fact that the pixels were nicer.
0: As a way to, well, as a p- perfect segue to bridge the gap to the next generation of Nintendo hardware, there was Doshin the Giant, which started out as an N sixty four game, and then you were involved in in porting it over to the GameCube. And Minty, you're going to tell us a little bit more about Doshin the Giant,
3: I believe. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, so games like Animal Crossing wouldn't come to the West until the the N sixty four title was uh, localized and then spruced up. Just a little for the GameCube. Uh, there was also Cubivore, which was a weird action-based life sim thing that had you romping around as sort of these square approximations of different animals. That was also in development for the N64 and was completely MIA until a GameCube release. Although it has been in the news this week <laughs> that a, uh, a prototype build of the N64 version was found and dumped online. That's it was, exciting. yeah. yeah. And then there was Doshin the Giant, a game that launched as a 64 disc drive exclusive. Nintendo's uh, sadly doomed N64 expansion that aims to bolster that machine's capability similar to the uh, Famicom disc system. It, Doshin is a very weird game that incredibly has a second release, including one in Europe for the GameCube. One of its original designers apparently described the game as Populous meets Mario. And that is about as succinct a description. You can afford a game as as willfully strange as this. You're a a big yellow giant and you can terraform the environment to support groups of settlers who reward your kind actions. with love, and they can also give you hate <laughs> as well, I believe, and turn you into uh, a, 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 a red version of yourself called uh, Jashin the Giant. Mm. Um, the teeny villagers might make uh, requests of you. They're a <laughs> yellow elastic deity. They might need shelter from natural disasters. It's a very very hands-on take on the, on, the, uh, on the god genre. Now, you, Giles, were the lead programmer tasked with moving this strange title from the N64 to the GameCube. What was what was your reaction to the to the game first and foremost and what, what 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 is the porting process like?
1: Well, I didn't actually end up porting it. I just made it from scratch because I looked at the code <laughs> and I looked at the difference between the N64 and the GameCube and just thought, "Oh, bleep this, I'm, I'm just going to do it from scratch." <laughs> oh. <laughs> Fantastic. So that's that's what I did. I don't think I even considered sort of actually porting it. But I think that was that was good because I don't think it was a very good Game on the N64. Mm. Technically, technically wise, I mean, mm. and that's not to diss the people that made it, but just I think it it could have done with a, a rewrite or a, you know re a rethink about how it all works, and we, that's what we kind of did. So it definitely wasn't a port. It was more of a sort of Doshin Two type thing.
3: Mm.
1: I think we used some of the some of the same graphics, but not a lot. Mm. I think it was just me, Ida San, and Kure San, the three of us. Mm. You know, it was before I'd started a studio, so I was sort of freelancing from home and just sort of sending ROMs to Nintendo every couple of days. It was a very weird weird kind of setup, literally sending ROMs via sort of courier-type thing because there was no oh, wow. no other way to send it,
0: <laughs> no internet. Yeah, goodness. Goodness
2: <laughs> me. I mean,
1: you mentioned there about
2: forming, you know, your, your own studio as as the next stage after kind of doing that freelance work and, and doing a lot of work pretty extensively, like within the walls of Nintendo. You went on to found a company called Vitae. When you started Vitae, what was it that prompted the decision to kind of go that direction to found your own development studio?
1: I didn't really have an intention to make a company, I think. It was just Nintendo. So, you know, you've got, we've got this game. It's going to be easier if there was a team. So I made a team, made a company to run the team. I mean,
2: in, in the early days of that company, you, you directed Rock and Roll Climber which I was I was keen to at least try out, but the Wii Shop has been completely switched off for a number of years. And you were also involved in Theta, a puzzle game for the DS, which, again, I, I would have played, but it was a Japanese exclusive. I don't have access to it. But shortly after that, you moved on to develop perhaps the, the highest profile game of, of Vitae's run, Steel Diver for the 3DS. And I think that was a, a fascinating release because it was a launch title for the 3DS in the US, and thus was some people's first exposure to the unique opportunities afforded by Stereoscopic 3D. I don't know how popular it was in the UK. It, it came out a few months after the console first launched, so I, I picked it up a few months down the line. But for anyone that never played it, it's it's a submarine game. You you control your little sub, not directly, instead of operating it using the face buttons and analog slider. you You've got the touchscreen to kind of manipulate different controls of, of the submarine. Stage is quite short, and, and eventually, in essence, the game becomes a sort of arcade time trial style racer almost where you're attempting to shave seconds off your best times while you work through little cave systems and past obstacles and and whatever it also had a really lovely i guess like a mini game section where the top screen is like a periscope viewer and the console's gyro sensor is used to aim your shots and i've got really fond memories of playing that game on like a spinny chair and just (laughs) feeling like an absolute king when when kind of taking down approaching enemies from all sides but Bearing in mind this launched as, as quite a high-profile title for the 3DS and was kind of co-developed and then published by Nintendo, how did that relationship come about, Giles? Was it, were you still just in close contact with the people within Nintendo because of, of Argonaut and, and working on Doshin and stuff like that?
1: You know, after CETA and, and whatnot, we, we ended up sort of getting closer and closer to Nintendo. CETA and Steel Over that was two published games, but in between those two, we had like so many prototypes of games that we worked on that were never released or... Or sort of put onto something else or, or whatever so we we ended up being almost like a sort of extension of EAD yeah so that's that's how we ended up doing Steel Diver but Steel Diver was actually a, a demo from Su, one of Sugiyama-san's demos for the original DS and we sort of we, we took that idea and we sort of you know re, redid the entire thing but again a bit like Doshin we sort of took the basis of the of the demo and just redid it from scratch with much nicer sort of physics and everything like that for the DS, not the 3DS. Yeah. So we had it, we had it finished and, and done on the the DS, and it was working really nicely. For it was going to be a DSiWare title, mm. I think, you know, one of the, the download things. Yeah. But it scored it scored really really highly within Nintendo. I think at that point, Nintendo had this sort of internal scoring system where if, if, a, if a game wasn't very good, it would go to DSiWare. <laughs> uh, but if it was, if it if it got over a certain score it would become an actual proper packaged product. And our, you know, Steel Diver, the DS Steel Diver scored really, really well. So they said, all right, let's make it more than just a DS eyewear game. Let's make it a proper package game. So we did that. And then right at the end of that, they suddenly announced the 3DS or a new, no, not the 3DS. It was the new DS hardware. So they say, all right, can rather than launching on DS, can you launch it on this new piece of hardware? So we, we did it for that. So I had this really long history where it was, it was just getting promoted every couple of years or every year, whatever, for <laughs> the, the next thing. But actually, I was just, you were just reminding me, uh, so we had the, the, the original development boards for the, D, uh, for the 3DS were these big sort of square, bare-boned PCB type things with two screens. One sort of wide screen, literally just printed on the circuit board. And then another screen underneath it printed on the circuit board. So that's what we were using to develop on for you know, a good few months, whatever. And we had no idea that the top screen was 3D <laughs> for the entire, for like six months of the development. And Nintendo kept it secret from the developers as well. And then they basically, one day, they sent us a us little sort of email or note saying, if you poke a number into this register here, the screen will become 3D. And we thought it was like a joke, <laughs> and we did it. And then suddenly we looked at, the, looked at the screen, and it was actually 3D. Which is incredible. Which was really cool, because we, we'd never heard of lenticular displays, whatever, up until that point. No, we I had I- absolutely no idea that that was what it was all about. So, yeah, I, I do remember that day. It was quite, it
2: was quite cool. I mean, we, we've talked quite a lot on this show about the 3DS in, in recent times, because I, I had like a sudden urge a few months back to pick up. A, a new console. I, I just wanted to experience it again, and it, it's still a lovely piece of tech. I, I have a real, real fondness for the 3DS.
1: Yeah, mm. uh, you know, the 3DS is one of my favourite Nintendo hard, hardwares by far. Yeah, it's, it's just such a nicely rounded package. I think. Yeah, and the, and the 3D, the actual 3D screen, just works so well on some games, yeah. like 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 Steel Diver, because you get the, you get a very sort of limited diorama type sort of feeling where it, there's a couple of inches of display behind the display yeah. not not a lot just yeah. just some depth yeah I, I was never a big fan of the actual sort of flying around th- 3d type games that that tried to come out of the screen yeah because yeah. they all seem to to go too far but i, I really like the sort of really constrained 3d games.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Some of those are so effective. Like, and, and the ones that are most effective, like you said, are the ones that actually use it more sparingly uh, or subtly, just to just to enhance the experience. And there's there's games that I even play now. Like uh, recently, I, I picked up the fantastic game, The Messenger, and that's a game that I just thought, oh, I, I just love this. Just to have a bit of depth, it would make it make it so so nice. Like playing Shovel Knight on 3ds is the best way of playing that game. Yeah. Or or let I me mean, any sort of two 2d platformer just benefits
1: so much from that added depth
0: it's lovely
1: so lovely the, the only the only design flaw with 3ds i thought was uh, everybody used to turn the 3d off because it used to shorten the battery life. Yeah. yeah so my my kids used to play 3ds all the time but they'd never use the 3d because it was you know their m- number one concern was how much battery life they had left yeah. Yeah. Most of the
2: time. thinking about steel diver now in 2021 it's, it's a very different sort of game uh, and it and it launched at a strange time when when the industry was pulling in all different directions. You know, it's it's quite a methodical, considered game. And and I know for some people it got quite a mixed response when it initially came out. But I, I feel like you probably have quite a lot of fondness for it. Like, how do you feel about it now, over you know a decade or so on from from it initially releasing?
1: It's one of my favorite games, but I can it, I can see how uncommercial it is <laughs> or it feels because yeah. it's just so it, it's so slow and unexciting sometimes.
2: <laughs> uh, that, that's how you sell it at the pitch meeting. A very unexciting game.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's, how they, that's how they sold it in the adverts here. It was, it was classed as being a game to sort of relax and play slowly, yeah. not a sort of hyper-exciting game. And that's, well, that's, that's exactly what it is, because you're, you're controlling a submarine that reacts really slowly anyway yeah, yeah. so you're not going to get many sort of sudden movements or anything like that it's just a completely different style of game mm. i think I, and that's why i kind of like it because it's just so different from other games yeah
0: yeah like you said, i mean just just by its nature it's going to be like you said it's a bit bit slower it's not like uh, you could release a game about racing canal barges <laughs> and expect <laughs> that to be uh you know to be like f-zero or something top speed of seven miles an hour
1: when you launch a missile you, you sort of you dial in the angle almost mm. and you, you wait until it gets there and you fire it and then 10 seconds later you 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 might have hit the target or not mm. I mean, It's kind of exactly how a real submarine would work mm. but obviously it doesn't make for a very exciting game but if you're into sort of simulations like that it's, I think it's, yeah. it's 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 good yeah i mean it hats off to nintendo because that was the period of time that they were they were willing to sort of Do those kind of games. Mm. There was a period where they'd take these big risks just to see what would happen, kind of thing. So moving on
0: from, I mean, I mean, your, your your journey through through games is, is is fantastic because it can be entirely traced through the development of 3D, going from, you know, the very sort of early stages of 3D on a 16-bit console through to the N64, and then through to uh, stereoscopic 3D, and then from stereoscopic 3D to virtual reality with your latest endeavor, which is carved snowboarding, billed as a spiritual successor to 1080, and uh, a, a v- very successful title in the the growing catalogue of the of the oculus i mean i'm i'm fortunate enough to have an oculus quest 2 which i haven't had as much use of in well in a fair little while since we have have had our lovely baby daughter but i I did strap it on for a few hours to play carve and it really is it's a very smooth experience i mean I, i was worried at first because even though I'm not particularly prone to motion sickness when playing VR stuff, I I knew that I was going to be going quite fast and possibly, you know, falling over, smashing into trees, stuff like that. And I was a little worried that I would find the game a bit nauseating. But I think the fact that you have very clear grounding of where you are in the game, which is, you know, your snowboard, that gives you a really clear base, so it allows you to have a very smooth experience. And I didn't have any any wobbly moments at all. Well, I mean, you know, obviously I I, I did on the snowboard, but not not in real life. <laughs> I think it's very very successfully done from that perspective. And I mean, one of the things that I often ask myself when playing a game that has a particular I'm going to say gimmick, but even though like VR is an established area of gaming in its own right, I've seen VR used as a gimmick. You know, I've seen it be crowbarred into other games just for the sake of it and it not really working at all. So I thought, you know, okay, well, I've played snowboarding games before, you know, like on the Saturn and the GameCube and the PS4. Why, why do I need to play one in VR? What am I going to gain from this experience that I haven't had before? The answer is an incredible thrill. (laughs) <laughs> you know it feels something akin to those like simulators you sit in at the arcades that give you the sensation of going on like a roller coaster or doing a big ski jump but you're in control of it you're not it's not passive you know it's purely active and it totally transforms the sensation of what it means to play a snowboarding game or, or any sort of uh, i guess sort of you know racing game i mean unlike a driving game you know you're totally exposed. You are the vehicle, and it just feels fantastic to have a very real sense of control over your movements and and being able to to steer and jump very easily and organically. It's just it's 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 excellent. It's it really really is. I think you know one of the hardest things to do in VR is to make it feel natural, and that that requires a, an awful lot of of creative thinking and then executing extraordinarily well programmed design to make it go it feels like I should control the game like this and it works because everybody's going to be slightly different on that sense you know everybody's going to have a slightly different sort of natural place to control VR from but certainly for me it worked brilliantly you know I even managed to pull off some good tricks and grinds on a few runs and I think that that's the area of the game where I think it it differs from a traditional console experience because like pulling off tricks in a sports game like this on a, on a normal controller. It's just the same as putting in button combos in a beat-em-up game. You know, it becomes more about that and stringing together absurdly long chains of tricks and, and less about what it what it feels like to be doing the sport itself. You know, and of course, precisely that is why like the Tony Hawk's games are so successful. You know, they're totally unrealistic and they, they lean into the arcadey nature of the setup that they've established. But I mean, very, very wisely, it's an area of the game that is handled very realistically in carve because otherwise... I think it would give you that disconnect that ruins so many good VR experiences. You know, you can pull off a few good jumps in a run, get a good grab and a spin. You can probably get a couple of good grinds to maybe pick up a couple of collectibles. But it all feels very achievable and tangible. And in many ways, it sort of like takes the pressure off, like massive score chasing runs on Tony Hawk's. I mean, having said that, you know, there are obviously there are the sort of score chasing freestyle modes in the game are there. And I haven't I haven't properly tackled some of those. So it's possible that I will have to um to, to up my game a bit to get some of those achievements. But it feels like a game that I will get better at with practice, you know, as the movements become more natural as my. I mean, as my body strengthens up as well, because like it's surprisingly tiring to play. Like you sort of have this like tension you have in your body to to keep your balance and 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 turn precisely, and that that's really exciting as well. To think that I I can grow in this game, and the game well not only allows me to do that, but it rewards me for it as well. I think it's it's an ex excellent excellent achievement, and and definitely definitely one of the most successful VR experiences. I've had so I mean I mean what was it that led you to return to you know to snowboarding after obviously having worked on 1080 what made you go you know what I think it's time to to get back to the slopes
1: <laughs> well thanks for that I mean I'm glad you enjoyed it uh, actually no, I was gonna I was just gonna you, you remind me that a lot of people have been saying it's really relaxing mm, it is just chilling out with some ambient an ambient mixtape and just going down the slopes I kind of I kind of get that but that definitely wasn't I guess we didn't really design it for that, but that's you know that's definitely a, a thing that I've noticed playing it, and, and it, it, other people notice playing it. But yeah, I mean, I guess it started with the DK1, the original Oculus headset from what seven or eight years ago. We got a few of those, and I thought you know I have to make a snowboarding game for this. So I just I just made some prototypes like many many years ago, and just tried various ideas out. And every Bit Summit we had, it's like a, a big trade show in in Kyoto. Yeah, right. You know, I'd show a little demo, and I'd get some feedback and, and go back for another year. You know, it was a very, very sort of slow burn, part-time type of thing. Probably took, I don't know, five years of just sort of just, just playing around with, with ideas to see what worked and what didn't work. And by that time, we'd already done a few VR titles at, at Tuhai, or the Bite Back room, So we knew what worked and what didn't work with VR in general. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's why it feels... Comfortable compared mm. with a lot of other games because we 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 know what makes people feel sick in VR now. Yeah, you know quite well. It's it's all, it's a combination of things like rotating the camera when your head isn't moving. That's, yeah. that's probably the number one number one thing. Sudden jerks of movement or it's or it's going up and down too fast and stuff like that. Put it all together and you you get a a, a vomit comment yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> where it's, yeah. One of the early prototypes had you could you could ski, you could sled, and snowbo- snowmobile. Mm. The skiing was fine, the snowboarding was fine, but sledding and snowmobile was awful <laughs> because you you can't get around the fact that you have to rotate the thing you're on. When you if you're sitting on a thing in VR, it has to rotate, and and when it rotates, you have to rotate the view. Yeah. And just just that simple thing alone, just you just can't use it in VR because it just makes anybody feel sick. Yeah the way we get around it in, in in carve is by never rotating the camera. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. So so then, you know, I thought, well, so we've got that limitation. How do we how do I make it so that you can actually control the snowboard without rotating the camera like that we also we tried things like sort of tying sensors to your legs Mm. so that you could control the ball with your legs and stuff like that on paper it would seem like you you could make a game where you your legs are controlling the ball Mm. but what actually happens is is you just you just get frustrated because you don't have the dexterity in your legs that you need for a snowboard but one of the one of the things i noticed you know in snowboarding in real life is is how much you use your hands or your arms rather yeah. for for balance and just general controlling where your board goes mm. you know i've been snowboarding for like mm. you know 20, 20 years years whatever you know it's quite a natural thing to sort of you put your hands where your board is going to go mm. so i thought well let's Rather than just don't you know, forget about the legs and forget about <laughs> everything else. Just 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 use your hands and and just get the snowboard sort of matching your hands or, or get matching where your your feet are. And I did that, and it just worked. You know, I was just sort of blown away about how well it felt. And then after that, it was just a matter of sort of figuring out how to do jumps and yeah. Yeah. and the edge control. So the, the, a lot of the early prototypes had the the edge control full on. I don't know if you you. You tried it with the full edge control no 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 not yet no But well, basically it's it's in snowboarding it's it's all about the edge it's all about sort of how much grit the snowboard has on the snow and that's how you turn and that's how you do sort of any any kind of movement in snowboarding for a long time that was the only control you had was basically you could you could control the edge and the rotation but i found out quite early on that was too much for most people just just controlling the rotation was enough for most people. Yeah. So that we turn that we put that into an option for for more advanced players.
0: Oh, that's cool! I look forward to having a go at that.
1: It's it's basically a culmination of of many years of just trial and error and seeing what works and seeing what doesn't work
0: it really is very very successful and uh yeah i'm looking forward to playing playing more of it i was also fortunate enough to be able to lend my oculus to minty to to give the game a go himself and i mean for a start i knew you had him sold on it as soon as he discovered you could go and pet the dog that is in the cabin you start in i mean that literally ticks every box in minty's game qualities list uh, that's uh, he was he was so happy he saw the dog i left the room to go and do something I came back and he was still playing with the dog but Minty uh, how did you get on with it outside of that that beautiful and fulfilling moment Or oh, before
1: he starts there can I just add that so it was my idea to put the dog in <laughs> excellent and everybody was, everybody was against it there were so many points <laughs> There were so many points where people said, "We don't need a dog. It's going to add too much. It's too confusing. Oh, or I don't like dogs. Or you know, who, whatever." Who the are these people? Was. Who are these people? And I it was me that put my foot down and saying, "No, we have to have a dog. Good, and it has to be petable. <laughs> yeah, and 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 cute. And it's. I mean, it's not the cutest dog. It's a bit of a mongrel, but that, you know, he's, it doesn't matter. He's
0: lovely, and I must say, I mean, it's it genuinely. Makes for a better gaming experience, having little touches like that. Does it do anything? No. Does it make you feel better? Absolutely. It's lovely. <laughs> Most games should have that. Yes, basically. You're preaching to the choir here. Certainly, when it comes to Minty. How did you get on with it, Minty? Yeah, I had a, had a huge amount of fun with
3: it actually. I, I'd say it was my probably my first full body VR experience. If that makes sense because I played um, played a bit of Tetris effects like on the old PSVR, which is just you know sat down with a controller. You've got the Tetris board in front of you, and it's it, it's lovely. It's very nice, but this was my very first game where you could sort of turn your head, and you can just look at everything. It's oh, it's it was really remarkable, actually. Um, so Jonathan uh, gave me the headset as as you're in the cabin, the log cabin, and to just sort of go from my sort of beige living room to this <laughs> to, to this beautiful warm. Wooden walled place, fire crackling, a, like a, a, a marshmallow gun there that you can sort of pick up and shoot things with. The dog over there. It was immediately immersive and really, really wonderful. Really loved it. I have to think back to this sort of technology, and I used to go to a lot of stage technology trade shows when I when I worked in theatre, and you'd you'd go around all the booths and you'd have sort of people demonstrating like their new tiny lightweight carabiner by having like three people hanging off it at the same time, sort of really showing off what everything can do. You'd have people using the new uh, sound boards and everything, letting you have demos. This feels like those sort of almost unattainably futuristic uh, bits of kit, but it's just a little thing that you put on your head in your living room and you're transported to a completely different world. It's It's just incredible. And for a snowboarding game, we've said you know it, it's 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 one of those extreme sports that always seems so so radical and so cool, but this is just a really lovely, relaxing experience for sure. I just loved how intuitive it was. It was just so gentle to play, and you can really get a decent bit of speed. It's it's it's, it's got a gentle exhilarating quality to it, although I didn't. I didn't really ask Jonathan what the controls were um, in any real detail. So unfortunately (laughs) I have pulled a muscle in my neck, (laughs) but yeah, once that loosens up a little, I'm going to enjoy a little bit more of it because I, I, I want, I want to see what happens when I collect all of the symbols or whatever or Grab the front of the board and do tricks and that sort of thing.
1: Once you're out of the wheelchair,
0: mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was surprised because I, I'd, I'd already done the tutorial when when you start the game, and I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure how to navigate you to 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 to, to replay that because it's one of the only downsides of the Oculus is the fact that. Like with PSVR, somebody who sat with you can watch what you're doing on the T V, whereas I can't see what Minty's doing when he's got the headset on. So I couldn't be like, Oh, you know, go through the menu see if you can find the tutorial.
1: You can with the casting to a phone thing, which is which is actually really cool. Well don't know if you've seen oh, that. It's I quick... didn't know you could do that. That's excellent. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really cool feature. Oh, you know, it's you can basically see what the other guy is seeing from... Oh perfect. From just with the phone, you know. Well,
0: there we go. Well, that's that problem solved. So I was, I was actually really surprised at how well you took to the controls. It, it, like, that's a real credit to you, Giles, and the fact that you didn't have a tutorial and you just organically controlled it, you know? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you took out your lampshade with, when you were trying to pull off a trick. But, um... <laughs> oh,
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the goal was not to have any tutorial, but, yeah. you know, when we were testing it, uh, you know, it was kind of obvious that people just couldn't really get past that first step. That's why we have the tutorial. Yeah, but, you know, if, you know, if it was my choice, I w- we wouldn't have anything. We'd just be, all right, now you've got, you're, you're on the slopes, now what do you do? You figure out, and I think it would be that kind of thing. Mm. But that's also why we don't really have an explanation for how to do the tricks, because I wanted people to just sort of discover the tricks, yeah. rather than just being told what to do. Mm. And it's really satisfying when you pull it off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so one of the things I hated about, not hated, but one of the things I wasn't keen on 1080 was the sort of the checklist of tricks to do. Yeah, and you just go through them one by one, uh, almost like a like a sort of a task list of things to do. I I, I didn't I wasn't keen wasn't keen on that. Mm. So I you know I like the idea of just having having everything there in the game, but it's up to you to kind of discover it in whatever manner you want, whether it's via Discord chat or via mm. videos on YouTube or whatever. Mm. It's more of a sort of a freestyle way of, of discovering stuff. I kind of like that idea. That's lovely. So
0: congratulations on, a, on an excellent uh, excellent achievement with, with Carve. And inevitably, as soon as somebody produces one thing, the following question is, what's next? So what is uh, what is next for you? Are you sticking with VR? Are you maybe uh, returning to riff on some of your other previous gaming ideas? Maybe doing a, an update of in the Giant playing VR <laughs> or Star Fox?
1: All, all of that, <laughs> apart from maybe the Star Fox thing. No, actually, by the time this comes out, you would have seen that we have a, a Playdate game coming Ooh, out, actually. Fantastic. Yeah, oh, that's, that's the second second Playdate developer we've spoken yeah, to that's now. Bizarre, <laughs> that's bizarre, isn't exciting.
0: it? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. We spoke with the chaps of a company called RNG Party, who uh, made a typing game called Backspace Booken and they're developing their next game for, for the Playdate. I'm very excited for uh, I'm very excited for that handheld. I think it looks absolutely stunning.
1: Oh yeah, tell us, tell us, tell us more. So like you know, six months ago, or maybe more than that, like a year ago, I took a couple of weeks off from the snowboarding game to make a little playdate game. But it's it's a really cool play playdate game. We showed it to a panic, and they said, "Well, this is really cool. Let's have it on the season pass mm. first run type thing." So that's. That's great, and that should be coming out in, whenever it comes out
0: I, i'm very very excited to to, to see what uh, to see what you've made um, are, are you making use of the innovative crank on the uh, on the console
1: well you can't you can't not do you can't <laughs> make a game for, for the play day and and ignore that yeah. <laughs> wonderful thing <laughs> it's interesting it's similar to carve almost where you know we designed the game for for VR, mm. not not we don't have a game and put it into VR. We make the game for VR. It's a similar thing for 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 the playdate thing. We made the game specifically to use the crank yeah. rather than coming up with an idea and then forcing putting the crank into it. Yeah, uh, which I, I, I love. I also I love the the limitation of the of the device. You know, the the fact you you've got a black and white screen. It's, it's a really nice screen quite low res you know there's only so many things you can do with it but that forces you to think more about the gameplay than the graphics and whatever yeah absolutely I I really like and it's such a nice machine to develop on it's you know you, you have a Mac you can you've got a simulator on a Mac you can work on it in a coffee shop or on a plane, oh. whatever, you know, it's, it's just glorious. It's a lovely machine.
0: That's so, so nice. I'm, yeah, I, I mean, I'm really excited about it. I think it's, I think it's a, a fantastically innovative uh, direction to take games. Obviously, when you have limitations, then that totally exercises your creative problem solving. And that's when you get proper innovation you get new things uh, and the idea of i mean just just the crank is is great that's really really fun i can't wait to see all the ways that's going to be used uh, and like you said just kind of maximizing the potential of just black and white simple sprite design very simple design it's got it's got to be very very focused and very clear for it to work and i think um yeah i i can't wait that's very exciting uh to hear that you're working on that as well and uh, yeah i think uh, certainly when when the when the playdate comes out we'll definitely do a new special on it yeah for sure may, may try and get you
1: back for that a play date special would be great i think it's going to be really popular i, I love the thing oh how exciting um but apart from that we're going to carry on with vr definitely excellent as, as a main thing vr is is the future for games i think but we're also doing things like the play date and and other you know flat screen SKUs and stuff So lovely. Bit of everything.
0: VR is is I I I hope where the future of gaming is going because now that I mean people are really starting to get used to how it works.
1: So it goes from two D to three D flat screen and then VR or actual proper three D is the natural progression of that. Yeah. And and where it where it takes you can imagine a future where you you don't have headsets you just have like a little sort of dot that you put on the side of your head yeah. a bit like that episode of black mirror or yeah
0: <laughs> yeah and nothing nothing can go wrong <laughs> you can
1: imagine a future where there's no you don't have TVs in your room you just you just have this little thing that you can project whatever you want wherever in in actual space that's going to be the future isn't it isn't it no doubt about that so whatever way you look at it is vr is the future
0: i mean getting the oculus and that and being able to play vr without wires attached to a console that is a re- that was a real game changer. The,
1: the Quest is a game changer. It's absolutely. extraordinary.
0: And the, the Quest 2 as well with, with its higher resolution. In my opinion, without a doubt, the best way to experience VR. And uh, and it's great that we've got developers like you and some other fantastic developers really sort of looking into the future with it and how to maximize it and how to push it and take things to the next level. And yeah, I can't, I can't wait to see what you do next. What a treat
1: it's been to talk with you. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's been great. So there we go. This has been a,
0: well, a, a fantastic trip through your life, Giles. And thank you very much for sharing so many great uh, anecdotes uh, and memories of your of your time going through the video game industry. If people want to uh, keep up to date with uh, with what you're
1: working on, Giles,
0: what is the best way for people to do that?
1: I guess Twitter. I'm, I'm, it's quite easy to get to me at Twitter. I'm just at Giles G I L E S. Nice. Uh, going there early. That's well probably the easiest
3: way. <laughs> yeah, <that's- laughs>
1: <laughs> That's like phase one Twitter name. I think I was actually using a number of... 20 or something like that oh wow one
0: of the early testers and you can get in touch with us uh, on our social media platforms we're on uh, facebook.com slash our three cents instagram at o3c podcast go to youtube search for our three cents you can find all of our video content there you can sometimes catch us streaming live on twitch at o3c podcast do get in touch with us chat to us about uh, any of these games that we've talked about what you're making of, of carve if you're playing that tell us what else you're playing we we always love to hear from you you can even reach out to us individually as well if you want to take us to task on any of our opinions or ask us anything specifically I'm on twitter at Jonathan Dunn
2: I am at Chaz underscore Hodges I'm Clement underscore Boo
0: and if you're really enjoying what we're doing do please check out our Patreon page patreon.com slash our three cents there's loads of fantastic perks available for several sort tiers of pledging there's full bonus episodes there's some fantastic ones on there including a special with the legendary vocalist T.J. Davis, who uh, features on the soundtrack to Sonic R and Metropolis Street Racer. Some fantastic other things as well, there's deleted scenes and outtakes, there's even custom artwork and access to the Patreon-exclusive Discord channel. That, uh, that Giles is now a part of. So, you can, if you if you want to subscribe to be a Patreon, you you may well be able to to have a chat with Giles on there. And please do join us next week, where we will be talking about our number twos. That doesn't sound right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> please join us next week when Chris will be telling you what his second favorite video game of all time is. Oh my is. goodness! So close to the end. Two. So close to the end. We can't wait
3: and now a word from our sponsor and now a word from our sponsor and now a word from our sponsor
2: on apocrypals we talk about the parts of the bible that a lot of people skip over like the wizard battles the angel jacuzzis a goat full of sins 500 drunk elephants and a man named porky party and yes that's all really in there all this and more on apocrypals every other week on the Greenlit podcast network Welcome to Casual Magic, the show where we explore the fun side of Magic the Gathering. I'm your host, Shivan Putt, and each week we delve into everything from casual formats to explorations of creatures and card types to interviews with designers of the game. At Casual Magic, we believe that it just isn't magic without the Gathering. Come along and play!